All right. Good morning. All right. Today we, we wrap up our Epiphany series, and this has been a wonderful little mini-series. Mini you may not know this, but this is actually Pastor Steve's brainchild. This was, this was his idea. Uh, back in November, uh, we were caught talking and emailing back and forth about what we were going to do with this little three-week gap uh, between uh, uh, December and uh, into January, or beginning of January. And uh, so we thought and we prayed and we fasted for months and years and decades since November. And, um, and then suddenly a thought came to Steve. From out of the blue, it just appeared to him. It was revealed to him. It was made known to him. He had an epiphany about an epiphany series, right? Oh, okay. I enjoyed that. All right. So if you have a low liturgical or non-liturgical background like me, you might go, Epipha, what? You know, what is that? Well, what we've been doing, Epiphany means that we started out this year making Jesus known. Not out of the blue, but out of the Bible. Amen? Amen? All right. Uh, and the theme, that we've been theme has been making Christ known by what we think and say and do. Wherever we are, not just in the sanctuary. Now, you know what happens sometimes? When you make Christ known, sometimes you suffer. Sometimes you face persecution. Uh, because the evil one and the fallen world, they stand opposed to Christ and the gospel. Now, I'm going to do my best to kind of remember what uh, Dr. John Hanna, who was my historical theology professor, it's an account that he gave at the beginning of one of his classes back when I was in seminary. Uh, and if you know this account, because this account is close to 100 years old. Uh, if you know this account, just kind of experience it again because it speaks of suffering and glory, which we can all be inspired by. Uh, Dr. Hannah, sh Hannah shared an account about a young man, brilliant man, a uh, guy talented with language, humble-hearted. Uh, he came from a fairly powerful family in America. Uh, he had an Ivy League background. It was Harvard or Princeton, I, I don't remember. This was back in the 1920-somethings. And against his parents' wishes, uh, he followed the Lord's call to be a missionary in the Far East, somewhere outside around China, I think. Uh, there had been some significant language learning about a remote tribe, and so uh, he was sent there to the translators in that region. Uh, he learned as much of that tribe's language as quickly as he could, and then he set out for his initial trip. Uh, he took these pamphlets with parts of the New Testament translated for the very first time in this tribe's language. And with little more than camping gear in the gospel, he traveled to this remote village. Uh, he walked, he rode, he also had a short canoe ride. Uh, he docked his canoe on the other side of the riverbank, and it was just upstream of the village that he was going to be speaking to. And he grabbed handfuls of pamphlets, and he stepped out of the boat, and he was immediately speared and shot full of arrows. He died before he said a word. His body was later fished out of the river, brought back to his grieving parents uh, in America. In their sorrow, uh, they just couldn't understand. With their faith weakening, all they could muster up in explanation of their son's death was, what a waste 
of a promising life. Last week, we looked at the Apostle John, who at the time he wrote his epistle, he was the last apostle standing. Other 11 had been martyred already. This morning, as we're in chapter 3 of Paul's letter uh, to Ephesus, the Ephesians, if you'd like, you can turn there now. It's a letter he penned uh, to the church while he was in prison in Rome for the first time. This letter was written probably in the early 60s A.D. Paul was suffering imprisonment because you could say he celebrated and proclaimed Epiphany every day, everywhere. To Paul, every day was a day to proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected. I like that about him, but it cost him. Along with others, I see this passage this morning as kind of a holy rabbit trail. It's a digression from where the Apostle Paul first starts in chapter 3, verse 1. So a helpful outline for us today is uh, the compassion of a prisoner. Uh, and you'll see that it bookends this, this passage, verse 1 and verse 13. Then there's the stewardship of grace, the mystery of the church, and the ministry of the gospel. And what we learn from the Apostle Paul today is the beauty of the church is the incalculable riches in Christ, which we're to share with other nations. Let me say that again. The beauty of the church is the incalculable riches in Christ, which we are to share with other nations. Follow along in your Bible. I'm just going to read the first six verses right now. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, Paul has written the letter of Ephesians to protect them, to protect the church in Ephesus from evil teachers who exist outside the church and from professing believers inside the church who would teach perverse things. But he also wrote a letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, the first half of Ephesians chapter 3 that we're looking today has a parallel section in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, through the first three verses of chapter 2. That might be helpful for you in your own study of this passage. So here in Ephesians 3, 1, it's actually the start of a prayer that gets interrupted with verses 2 through 13. In fact, if you look later on, verse 14 continues uh, in the prayer with the exact same wording of verse 1. It says, for this reason, and then the Apostle Paul continues on with, I bow my knee before the Father. And so these first 13 verses just kind of interrupt Paul's prayer right at the very beginning. So why does Paul go down this holy rabbit trail that kind of bookends both sides of this passage with his imprisonment and his suffering? Well, it's to tend to the weary hearts and minds of his readers in Ephesus for two reasons. To ease their pain and to protect their faith. 
First, the Ephesians know he's in a Roman jail, which is not a great place to be. And they hurt for him. So Paul tends to their pain born out of their sympathy or empathy for him. Second, he knows that the Ephesians are going to begin to wonder about and maybe even doubt the gospel if their own champion of the faith is suffering day after day, month after month. I mean, suffering is such a thorny issue, especially when good, godly, and righteous people suffer. I mean, we feel so helpless, especially when people we love are suffering and there's no remedy in sight. And that can cause us to doubt God's goodness or His power to relieve suffering. Uh, He doesn't, um, intending to their discouragement, nowhere do we read here the Apostle Paul, he doesn't start to grumble, he doesn't start to complain, nor do we hear him stoically resign himself to his suffering. He also doesn't reason to himself or his readers and say, you know, you got to take the bad with the good. He doesn't say that. Nor does he respond with, you know, we all just got to get tough now. No, what Paul does here is exactly the same thing he does in Philippians 1, verse 12. There he told the church in Philippi, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There he told the church in Philippi, I want you to know what's what's bigger, what's more important here. Paul's not ignoring his hardship. He's just keeping the main thing the main thing. So when we look at the bookends of this passage, verse 1 and verse 13, Paul tells him that he is a prisoner of Christ, not Rome. You see, the Ephesians might be thinking, well, Paul's in Rome. He's in a Roman jail, chained to Roman soldiers. He's a prisoner because Emperor Nero and the mighty Roman government have put him there. To that, Paul says, uh-uh, no how. No way. Paul became a prisoner of Christ years earlier on the road to Damascus. And Jesus told him then, told him then, suffering before glory. And the glory that the Ephesians have and will have as a result of Paul's suffering for them is the glory that Christ shares with them in salvation and finally and fully in their glorification in eternity. That perspective on suffering kind of bookends all the rest that he says here from verses 2 through 12. So let's start there. As we look at the stewardship of grace in verses 2 through 5, here Paul quickly references his commissioning from God, and then he explains it a few verses later. In essence, God gave Paul a gift in giving him the responsibility to live out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Another important term for us to understand is the word mystery. Uh, Paul uses that here three times between verse 3 and verse 6. Paul's quick to let the Ephesians know that he didn't come up with this mystery himself, nor did they learn it from any other people. It was revealed to him from God. The word mystery in Scripture is used quite differently than we use it in English. Let me explain what it is and what it's not. I think maybe I've told you a little bit about kind of the movie-watching dynamics that my wife and I have. Uh, Neither of us like really predictable movies. Well, Kim likes to watch some of those 
sappy, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Hallmark movies? But for the most part, uh, the more random a movie plot seems, the more we like it. The longer the nature of this key relationship or uh, valuable asset remains a mystery, or the plot takes twists and turns, the better it is for us. So keep the mystery a mystery as long as you can. Don't let us figure it out right away. Well, that's exactly not what Paul says here. That's not what he means here with the Greek word for mystery. So in the context of the first century Ephesian believers, mystery is not somebody of, uh, some, somebody of esoteric knowledge that the clandestine cults of Ephesus rigorously reserved to keep a secret from all but a few. Mystery is not intentionally hiding valuable truth or making it known only to a select deserving few. What mystery is is something that is now known because God has revealed it. God's plan of salvation was already present in the Old Testament, but not fully revealed, not clearly revealed. And as such, it was hidden in a sense, but now it's being made fully manifest through Christ with Paul revealing it to the Gentiles as he was commissioned by Christ to do. And the content of the mystery that Paul reveals to his generation and were to reveal to our generation is the gospel. Salvation comes only by Christ. And specifically here in verse 6, the mystery is spelled out as salvation being for Jew and Gentile alike. Equal ground with God. Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be saved. All people and, and nations have equal access to God through Christ and are equally and deeply loved. That's the mystery that Paul was commissioned by Jesus to reveal. And in verses 7 through 12, we see Paul's unique ministry of the gospel and ours. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 first. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So let's, let's stop there. In verse 7, Paul says that his role, his office as a minister was gift to him, was grace to him. Likewise, so, was, so were his abilities and the power to carry out the ministry. Those were God-given also. Interestingly, in verse 8, he mentions that he was the least of all saints. Not, not least of apostles, but least of all saints. And there were two reasons for this. For all of Paul's appreciation of being a saint a believer, much less an apostle. Uh, he had no inflated sense of ability or value. Uh, he especially felt that he should have been rejected because he persecuted the church, but still grace abounded, and he was chosen by God. He never got over the fact that God had chosen him in spite of his horrible past. Chosen not based on his own ability, but by God's grace. And whatever he accomplished was the result of God's power at work in him. 
Uh, the other reason is to remind us today that God does the same for us, utilizes all of us in sharing what verse 8 describes as the unsearchable, the in, uh, incalculable riches of Christ. Uh, John Piper calls this uh, a missions, missions passage, and rightly so. I'm going to use a couple of his thoughts, and, and here's one of them. He says this, Missions happen by preaching to the nations the unsearchable riches in Christ. Missionaries lift up Jesus Christ and all that God is for us in Him, and God gathers His church from all the peoples of the world. Well said. That term, unsearchable riches of Christ, that covers a lot of ground, but here's the big picture of what it means. Back in Ephesians 2, verse 12, Paul tells the Gentiles, uh, the converts from other nations, he says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, uh, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You read on, uh, or like in other words, once all that God had promised in the Old Testament for the glorious future of His people was not theirs. They were excluded from everything God promised. But if you look a few verses later, verse 19, that based on the cross of Christ, we read this. Paul writes, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what missionaries preach everywhere they go. All who trust Christ are now fellow citizens of Israel. We're all members of the household of God. Uh, we inherit every promise of God when we trust Christ. We will inherit the earth, and we will be heirs to the new heavens and new earth. We're children of the creator of the universe in Jesus Christ. All things are ours. Jesus Christ is the sum of all those things. And then Ephesians 2.7 says, So in the coming ages... He, meaning God, might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So it's going to take ages upon ages upon ages just to start seeing the riches of Christ. But I mean, we will never see the end of the immeasurable riches of Christ. That's what missionaries say to the nations of the world. That Christ died and rose again so that people from every nation might be one might be the church in this unsearchably rich inheritance. Oh, by the way, have you ever seen a picture of a missionary? Uh, you probably have one on you right now. If you pulled out your license, you'd see a picture of a missionary right there. And don't fret, if you don't have a license yet, you can see a picture of a missionary too. Just look in the mirror. You'll see a picture of a missionary. Let's own that responsibility courageously. Do uh, you know what verse 8 here also sounds like to me? You know Romans 11, verse 33? Some of you probably have it memorized. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. And that's a great transition to the last verses that we're going to be looking at in our passage. To describe the manifold, meaning the multicolored, the multifaceted wisdom of God. Previously in verse 9, speaking of God who 
is the creator of everything and who's revealed this mystery. Uh, his church includes all nations. Paul now continues in verse 10. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The church here is described as the revealing agent. The revealing agent of the diverse and many-colored wisdom of God. That's our primary purpose. This is the gathered church. This message is to the gathered churches as they meet together that dot the terrain all over the world. That's how this has been used throughout history. You know, one of the truly diseased thoughts that infects the church in America is that some believers think that they don't have to be a part of a gathered church. So many surveys today show that believers think that you can be a good Christian and not be a part of a church. Here in other passages, Paul would listen to that and not have any idea of what you're talking about. Paul's saying it's essential for the world to understand the beauty of the gospel is to have churches, gatherings of believers living out their faith for him. Paul's not idealistic. I mean, he knows what a mess churches can be to some degree. I mean, look at all of his writings to messed up churches. All these New Testament churches are riddled with trouble. I mean, he's not naive. And yet he says the church is absolutely indispensable. It's the church who reveals God's wisdom to every part of a multinational comprehending creation. This cert certainly includes a diversity of tribes and tongues and nations in God's family. But humanity is not the only audience for which God intends to see the church in action. This audience includes the rulers and authority, authorities in heavenly places. So this includes spiritual beings, both evil and good. Mankind has limited knowledge about the beings in this realm. And what one commentator said seems to ring true. That is, while angels look on and marvel, the demons look on in fear and tremble. So angels look deeply, longingly at the beautiful expression of the grace and the wisdom of God through His church. But the evil spirits in the heavenly places know that they were already defeated in the cross and their eternal imprisonment awaits them. Evil spirits see their destructive rule progressively coming to an end because of Jesus. So as important as all believers' efforts of proclaiming this gospel mystery are, and they are important, we still have to realize that it is Jesus who remains preeminent. Jesus is the one who came and accomplished, fulfilled, achieved God's plan. And we are the multicolored witnesses to his glory. Can I get an amen? Amen. And it's precisely because of our faith in Jesus, what he accomplished in our behalf, that verse 12 says, through prayer we can humbly but boldly seek and rest in the presence of God our Father. It's not by our power, but through prayer. 
The church lives by prayer. The church loves by prayer. The gospel is made known by the church's prayer. Now, as I close this morning, no doubt Paul had a very unique expression, a unique expression of God's call on a believer's life. But God still has a call for every one of us, every believer's life. God's call for you and me is to humbly and courageously reveal our story to others. We feel how God's beautiful sovereignty enables us to to draw on the unsearchable riches of Christ in order that we would live now. Live now a powerfully sacrificial life for His glory. So after listening to Paul's commitment to not only getting the gospel to others at great cost to himself, he says this in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. For, for you, which is your glory. That's interesting. Paul's tending to the hearts of believers, again, who may struggle with their faith in the face of suffering, specifically Paul's suffering here. And the glory that they will have and will have as a result of Paul's suffering is the glory that Christ shares with them. I said this earlier, the glory that Christ shares in their salvation and finally and fully in their glorification in eternity. Christ followers every generation, we need that reminder of the glory that Jesus shares with us. By it, we're helped to persevere. I remember at the beginning of my sermon that there was an absence of glory, seemingly. Now, that, that waste of a promising life perspective from the parents, um, at the loss of their son. Well, as Tertullian observed centuries ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As God would have it from eternity past, the cross comes before the crown. Suffering precedes glory. That young man's death and his parents' suffering actually became that tribe's glory. Because of that man's death, the, the, the tribe was deemed dangerous and unreceptive by missionary organizations and all the work, all work with them ceased for several years. But as God would have it, the day that young man's body fell into the river, so did the gospel pamphlets for the first time, translated in their language. They slipped out of his hand and floated downstream. And over time, as the tribe fished in the river, washed their clothes in the river, played in the river, bloodstained copies of the gospel and their language floated right up to them. Years later, as efforts were resumed to try and reach this tribe with the gospel, missionaries were surprised to find thriving faith within this tribe. That young man's death, his parents' suffering were glory to that tribe. Now, I've never heard how the parents responded, and, and I'm pretty sure that it's beyond me to be able to, to suffer to that extent and or the extent that Paul did and respond like Paul. Uh, it's indeed uh, power-working grace in Paul and in others 
to endure suffering or to endure isolation while being more concerned for others than we are for ourselves. So I know I've got a lot of room, a lot of room to grow myself. And the application for all of us could be something like this. What's one aspect of our life that the gospel has transformed? What's one aspect? I ask that so that we can discover or remind ourselves because that is to Christ's glory. He who suffered for us, our transformation is to Christ's glory. Next, how could that part of our story be shared to reveal God's mystery to others? Now, we're not talking about bragging here. But we are to share it with the same humility and the same amazement that Paul had about being an undeserved recipient of God's empowering and transforming grace. The example Paul gives us is that he shares his story. So the church collectively, not just individually, so we know we are to share our story. And all of this just manifests God's multicolored, multifaceted wisdom as we share the eternal and unsearchable riches of Christ, our Savior, with the world. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that uh, you have much planned for us. Uh, whatever uh, different hats we wear, whether it's a, a little boy, a little girl, young man, young woman, mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather, um, or just called, you know, even singly by you. We recognize that you have much ministry to accomplish in us. So, Father, may we remember first and foremost that um, that ministry is gift to us, that we are empowered and equipped by your Spirit, uh, He who is grace to us also, and that we come to understand and fulfill and live out that grace first and foremost, through our prayer life. Father, our, our prayers are of utmost importance. Not just the times that we are alone in our closet and praying, but when we are with as many of our gathered church that would come together. Father, we can do more than pray, but let us first pray. And then let us carry out the purpose for which you have called us, that you have chosen us, that you have empowered and gifted us. And that is to take the message of the gospel, that your son sacrificed himself so that we might experience eternal life right now. We meaning every tongue and tribe and nation on this earth. Father, thank you for... Uh, the history, the legacy of TCBC. I mean, we even heard, just heard this morning that the, the desire to get the gospel to um, you know, other nations, to get it across the ocean and across the street. Father, may I pray that, I pray that uh, our desire to be faithful to you in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our world, 
Uh, may our heart burn with the same passion that your sons did, that we see lived out in the Apostle Paul. May we live our lives to communicate the unsearchable riches of your son to a watching world. We ask this in his name. Amen.